Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This episode is being brought to you by the Sierra Club, which encourages you to get out there and explore, enjoy, and protect the planet. Join 3.8 million members and supporters working to power this nation with 100% clean energy at sierraclub.org. And now, on to this episode of No Place Like Home. Hi, listeners. It's so good to be back. I do want to give you a heads up and trigger a warning that parts of this conversation do include matters uh, regarding mental health challenges and suicide. So if these topics could be potentially triggering for you, please listen at your own discretion. Hi, I'm Anna Jane Joyner, and I'm a climate activist living on the Gulf Coast of Alabama. And I'm Marianne Hitt, a climate strategist living in the West Virginia Hills. And this is No Place Like Home, a show that gets to the heart of climate change. This season, at a time when we've all been through so much turmoil and heartbreak, we're exploring the concept of loss and what it really means to embrace the mystery of the future. We'll be talking with one another and a couple of friends. And on this first episode, we are bringing you a conversation with Amy Westervelt who is the founder of the Critical Frequency Podcast Network, which hosts No Place Like Home, and the creator of the award-winning podcast, Drilled. She's contributed to lots of major national media outlets. She wrote a book about motherhood. Uh, she lives in Tahoe, California with her husband and children, and we are excited to bring you this conversation. We'll dive into my conversation with Amy in just a minute, but first, Marianne and I have some catching up to do. Anna Jane, I have missed you and I have missed no place like home. I know it's been so incredibly long and during just a, a period that has felt like ages anyways. Well, we are happy to be back listeners and wanted to share that we're doing a little mini season here. And this is likely our final season of no place like home, at least for a while, which it's hard to say and hard to share, but Anna Jane and I have both started up some new projects and jobs in our lives, and we wanted to be sure before we turned our full attention to those that we reconnected one more time to talk about something that's very close to our hearts. And I just wanted to to share before we get into this new little mini season, I just wanted to give a, a quick shout out because I'm trying to remember, Anna Jane, how many years ago we started this podcast. It's at least five. And when we started, there were almost no climate podcasts. And so I just want to give a quick shout out to some of the great shows out there now. Hot Take with Amy Westervelt, who you'll hear from, and Mary Annie's Heglar. Uh, How to Save a Planet, uh, longtime co-host Ayana, Dr. Ayana Elizabeth Johnson, who is leaving but created a great podcast for the past year. Mothers of Invention is another great one and A Matter of Degrees with our friends Dr. Katherine Wilkinson and Dr. Leah Stokes. So just great podcasts with great hosts telling great stories. And so lots more for you to explore out there if you are not already. And we are going to make one final little contribution here with, with a new season 
about something we've all been experiencing this year, which is is loss and trying to delve into what can be a tricky topic and hopefully some ways that will encourage you and resonate with you and, and make you feel a little less alone after this very hard year we've all been through. I'm really excited to talk about this theme because it has been such a, you know, something I feel like just everyone in the world has been experiencing, you know, a, a very intense experience and sensation of loss all around us. Many of us have experienced it directly. I know both of us have gone through through our own things, and I share some of my story in the last episode of this season. Um, but I've really just come to, I've come to believe in the, in the importance of facing hard emotions, um, like loss and, and death and the, the fear of change. <laughs> and I'm excited to do that here, to really dive in and, and kind of look at the, at the really hard stuff that comes up when you think about climate and just being alive in the world <laughs> at this moment in time. I think it is important too, and uh, as you know, Anna Jane, very well, um, earlier this year, I lost my dad after a long struggle with Parkinson's disease, and then we sold my childhood home that I had grown up in to make it possible for my mom to come live closer to us, and so those are a couple of very big losses that are honestly so so fresh and so hard that... I am still having a hard time talking about them. And and that is part of this journey too, is that it's one thing to talk about facing our pain and our difficult feelings. And it's another thing to actually do it and to go through it. And one of the reasons we wanted to bring this topic to our listeners is because so many people have gone through that, whether it's a loss of a loved one over this past year, or all of the losses that we're all feeling, both in kind of these political systems that have failed us in our reckoning with racial justice and the strains on our democracy, um, but also climate change and the very real losses of places that people love, the loss of the sense of security and safety, the the loss of, of certainty of what the future is going to look like. And we're all up to our eyeballs in that right now. And we wanted to talk about it. We wanted to share experiences of some friends who have gone through climate-related losses and personal losses and pull the wisdom that we could out of there so that we can all get through this together because you can feel very lonely in these moments, I know, and we are definitely not alone. And so hopefully these conversations will help you all feel less alone and more connected and and we can find the wisdom that comes out of some of these most challenging chapters of our lives. Beautifully said. And to kick off this mini-series, I'm excited to share a poem by Drew Jackson that I think just beautifully encapsulates the themes that we're going to be exploring. And I found this poem at an Easter service, a virtual Easter service, where this amazing priest named Richard Rohr gave the homily. And it's really what inspired the idea for this season for me and in in the homily and this was this past easter so when we're all just in the in the midst of of i mean we've gone kind of in and out of the midst of, of really horrible moments of loss um, when it comes to covid and we were definitely in one of those and he talked about how in the resurrection story that the death was just as important as the resurrection. And a lot of people don't think about that. Like there was something about, and this is obviously metaphor, for at least for, I believe it's metaphor, but however you want to interpret this story. But the idea of Jesus or the divine taking us down into the darkest place, the place of incredible uncertainty and, and darkness, 
and pain and death, (laughs) that was as important as the rising part of the resurrection. Like there was something about God walking us through the darkest parts that allowed us to rise into uh, resurrection and and a new form of, of life. So here's a poem, which is called Under the Ground by Drew Jackson. Life is always happening underground, the place that light has forsaken. Finite minds cannot take in that the belly of Mother Earth is indeed a womb. Entombed in the soil is the pip of a new Eden. Only the seed that has fallen into the pit can burst through into the morning dew to announce to weeping eyes that a new day has risen. A day in which the voices and stories of women are believed, their word received as good news, and the men have no problem following them and learning how to believe again. What I mean is this, the world has been flipped on its head, heaven has invaded hell, the spell of death is broken, and the doorway opened to a new way of being. It all begins with seeing that the darkness of our world is luminous, and in the humus of life is where we become fully human. That is beautiful, Anna Jane. Thank you for sharing that. And I will tell you, I want to believe (laughs) this poem. After the unending hardships of this past year, I, I so want to believe that we are flipping the world on its head and that new things are going to be possible coming out of this that would not have been possible before. Um, you know, just personally, I left the Sierra Club and started a new job. So I've, I've flipped my personal world on its head as a result in part of some of those losses in my life and the, the dark place, that dark pit that that sent me into. And I, I know a lot of other people are doing the same thing, uh, leaving their jobs, starting new jobs, starting new projects, and re- just taking a, taking a much harder look at, at what needs to change personally and as a country, um, this is that moment. And so that's why we wanted to bring this season to all of you, our listeners, so we could share those reflections together. And we're going to be talking with a couple of people about their experiences of loss and how they were transformed by those experiences, including losses related to climate change, losses of the safety and security of the places that they loved. And the first is Amy Westervelt, um, her podcast network critical frequency has been the home of no place like home for a couple of seasons and she has a a powerful personal story to tell that you spoke with her about Anna Jane yeah it was it it was truly I mean a harrowing story and and I I do I think it's so hard because you don't want to wish the wisdom that comes from loss on to anyone but there is I do think that there's something really valuable to learning that like life and and beauty can coexist with pain and loss. So Amy and I talk about this at length and it was I'm just so grateful to her for sharing her story. And the way it starts is ironic as she's one of the best climate journalists in the world, but she started by doing case studies for the oil industry. She just picked it up cuz she needed the money when she was a young writer. 
Um, and she was learning about how they are adapting to climate change. Like they were basically adapting their oil rigs to deal with sea level rise. And this is back in 2005. But at the time, their A, entire business model is built on making climate change and sea level rise worse. And also, they're not telling the larger world. Like, they're taking these insights from science and applying it to make their business that's destroying the world more resilient and not like you know, having the courtesy to tell the rest of us that we should be doing the same. So that sparked her interest in climate journalism. And she's gone on to win a bunch of awards, including the Rachel Carson Award for Women Greening Journalism, the Edward R. Murrow Award for a series on the impacts of a Tesla gigafactory in Nevada. And as the head of Critical Frequency, she has produced more than a dozen podcasts, including her own show, Drilled, which is an amazing true crime style podcast about climate change, kind of the madmen of climate change. Um, and she has been awarded an online news association award for excellence in audio storytelling for that podcast. It's so amazing on our last season to talk to both Amy and then you'll hear from Mary and Ayes Hegler about her experience in our next episode. They, of course, host our sister podcast, Hot Take where they talk a lot about the emotional cost of working on climate and openly talk about their own feelings of rage and grief and despair. For years in climate media circles and in climate activist circles, too, I think it was really sort of frowned upon to talk about how climate change felt or how mad you were about it. Like I, I wrote an essay a few years ago called The Case for Climate Rage because I had basically been shushed on a listserv about it. It was like a, you know, a middle-aged guy who was like, let's be, let's not get too emotional about this. And I just was like, because <laughs> like, what the hell else are you going to get emotional about? This is something that is deeply unfair, that is imposing all kinds of trauma and stress and death on people who do not deserve it, did nothing, you know, to to cause or exacerbate the problem. This is like a, the, the biggest example of injustice. And I'm not sure why you think that people should just be dispassionate about it. I think it's huge to give people space to have the full range of emotions, as our mutual friend Renee Lertzman talks about a lot, too, that like I, I also hate the sort of policing of those emotions. Like it's perfectly fine to feel despair sometimes. And you're you're probably going to have a whole range of emotions about this stuff. And it's not going to be the same all the time. And that's perfectly normal, you know. <laughs> and Yeah. Anna Jane, one thing I just want to note here is that a lot of people, I expect, are feeling this way after this past year of climate disasters. A lot of people are probably feeling these strong emotions, and some folks maybe for the first time. There's certainly been a lot of media coverage of it, and that's one of the reasons we wanted to do this mini-season is to help people navigate through these very strong emotions that can overtake you when you realize just the very dire straits that our climate is in and how how short the window is time we have is to to turn the corner. I've been talking a lot with um, climate psychology experts. And one 
um, that I just, I love reading the work and talking to Dr. Britt Ray. And she talks a lot about how one of the most important things we can do is just communicate that it's okay to feel these things, that it's actually pretty normal to feel these things. Like, uh, we feel so like almost shame for being super freaked out or super angry or super scared or super sad. But it would it would be sociopathic to be looking at the climate impacts we're experiencing right now um, and not feel those emotions, right? Like, obviously, we can't feel them all the time or else we're just going to burn our nervous systems out or go crazy. But you know, it, it is healthy to, to look at the problems, the world that we're in, and have a visceral emotional response. It is very normal. And so I think what's going on is a lot of people are feeling these things, but they don't realize that everyone else is also feeling these things. And so people feel really alone. And you, when you feel alone like that, and you, you're having all these hard, dark emotions, you can't move into a place of agency of actually doing something about it. I agree. And one of the emotions that people often feel that has been, frankly, weaponized by the fossil fuel industry has been shame and guilt. Uh, thinking about your own contributions, which we're all, you can't, as a human being living on this planet, you're contributing, of course, to greenhouse gas emissions. And, and the fossil fuel industry has been at the heart, as Amy has covered very thoroughly in her reporting, they have been at the heart of taking this guilt and shame that people feel and and weaponizing it against them so that people feel that they have to be perfect individuals with no carbon footprint before they can even get involved and try to change those bigger systems. And so all of these emotions that we are we are feeling as we grapple with the loss of our safe and secure climate, some of those as Amy has has explored in her journalism, are are being weaponized against us by the fossil fuel industry, and that's something we hope that people will wake up to um, and and not not be fooled by those tricks any longer. The fossil fuel industry has spent a lot of money and a lot of time really crafting a very effective framing around that. In fact, they created the whole idea of a carbon footprint, and you know, BP created the carbon calculator. Um, and, and it was not to calculate their own carbon footprint. It was to encourage all of us to calculate our own individual carbon footprints and, and to really push this like, we're all in this together, like you have to do your part too, which is is really just sort of a continuation of something that they've been doing for, you know, 100 years, which is basically telling the story of we just supply a demand. Therefore, any problem that you have um, stems from your own demand for this product and not from anything that we're doing. I encourage people to, you know, yes, of course, try to live your life according to your values. You know, like I'm right now trying to drastically reduce the amount of plastic crap that I buy my kids, for example. <laughs> um, but I also think like, you know, we live in a society the whole way that that works is that the vast majority of us do not have control over a lot of the options that are even available to us. So like I, for example, I don't have a public transit option. Um, if I did, I would not have a car. <laughs> you know? Most of us have not dictated, you know, policy around infrastructure. Um, so there are limits to to where 
your kind of personal responsibility lies. And I think it's really, really important to just sort of join your individual efforts up with broader efforts to change the system and to make kind of better options more available to everyone. I totally agree with this. Like, I just think it's bullshit that uh, we have been made to feel like climate change is our fault when it's it's not. We are not the people who have made the decisions to create systems that are destroying the world. I mean, unless you're a fossil fuel executive or a government official who's been pandering to them, um, then you you are not who created the climate crisis. Like, I've even moved away from calling it uh, human-caused climate change because I'm like, humans did not cause this. Like, a very small group of very privileged humans cause this. And I don't think that humanity should have to claim blame for all this. I think we should be very clear that there is there is people to blame, but it is not all of humanity. Yes. And, you know, I love um, Amy's comment about, of course, make choices in your own life to align yourself with your values, because that does put you in a place of integrity to critique these broader systems, but also don't let that paralyze you or prevent you from enjoying your life because you're you're obsessing over over every little choice you make. And I think that can be especially true. Um, I can say this as a mom, when you're not only making these decisions for yourself or yourself and your partner, but then you're raising up a human who is looking to you for their set of values. And I think, again, when we think about the loss that folks have experienced in the past year around climate change, I can say as a mom, it it feels extra hard to take because it's not just thinking about the world that I'm going to live in for the next few decades, but it's knowing that in these years in the far, far distant future, like 2050, 2080, when we're projecting possible apocalyptic scenarios, my daughter will be alive and perhaps my grandchildren, if she becomes a mom, will be alive. And so there's an extra intensity, I think, to this when you are a parent. And that's something that Amy uh, shared with you as well. It's very weird to look at your kids and know that their lives are going to be materially worse than yours, no matter what you do. Like that is a very weird thing to wrap your head around as a parent. And it like, I mean, honestly, sometimes they'll say something like really hopeful about the future. And it just takes my breath away because I'm like, Ooh, I'm not sure if that's going to exist when you're an adult. But then part of what I think about is like, well, you know, we're not the first people to have that experience. Like, you know, I think about um, women who had children in slavery or women who've had children in prison or people who have had children in abject poverty for years. The way we're kind of told to think about parenting is like that you're you know, you're trying to help your kids have uh, have a good life and help them navigate the world and all of that, those kinds of things. And a lot of it is a lot of it is based on sort of knowing what the future holds in a way that we just don't anymore. Yeah, just thank you for saying that, Amy. I a lot of people say will say when you are a parent and you have a kid out there in the world, it feels like your heart is walking around outside of your body and you want to protect them. And when they're little, you, you know, protect them when they cross the street and you protect them from 
and any number of dangers and knowing there's this big looming danger out there. It's very motivating for me. I will tell you that, you know, whether or not I can fully protect her or all kids uh, remains to be seen. (laughs) But It is certainly something that gets me out of bed every morning is doing every single thing I can to protect all of the kids out there as much as we all can. And I think, again, that this pandemic has also laid bare the limits of the ability of any one of us to fix these broader systems. I think that's, you know, whether it's the sort of failures uh, in the early days of COVID of our healthcare system or um, the failures, again, in our political system that we saw with the raid on the Capitol and on January 6th, that this very intense individualism that we are all weaned on in this culture, that it uh, has a dark side and it has its limits. And in fact, we really are all in this together and we are going to have to solve these problems together. And I know that's something that that you and Amy talked about as well. Yeah, it's um, it's something that's super you know, personal to her, both as a mom who has, you know, really struggled along with pretty much every mother I know during the pandemic. But she also had um, a a real tragedy happen at the beginning of the pandemic, where she lost her her father to suicide. And he had been, he'd been really struggling with mental health issues for, for years. And um, was kind of of this generation of, of men who, who didn't feel able to, to get support. And she shares some of that, that story and how the American mental health system really failed him, as it does for so many. In my dad's case, he was from a generation that, like, very much frowned on therapy for men in particular. And I have a twin brother. And when we were uh, 18, my well, when we were 17, my brother joined the Marines. And when we were 18, someone uh, attacked him on base and uh, stabbed him 14 times, bashed his head in with something and threw him out a window, paralyzing him for the rest of his life. You know, I think my dad carried a lot of guilt because he felt like he wasn't able to protect his kid. And and he, um, you know, he had at least two uh, pretty serious suicide attempts before this one. And I remember going and visiting him in in like a, a sort of mental health ward of a a hospital and it was like you know you get checked in for 72 hours um then you get checked out with like a couple weeks worth of meds and a list of phone numbers and when my dad was released I asked the nurses okay you know is there a therapist that you recommend they kind of looked at me with this like blank (laughs) stare (laughs) they were like oh well you just have to see who your insurance covers and then try to find an available appointment and you better get one in the next couple of weeks because he's going to run out of his meds. And at the same like at the exact same time that he was released another guy was coming out with his like paper bag of belongings and and I saw him, you know, like an hour later still sitting on the bus bench out in front. So I'm just like, wow, like if you don't have a kid or a spouse or someone who's going to like take care of all of this stuff for you, you're just totally thrown out. I I really think that that needs to shift if we're going to if we're going to actually tackle not only climate but all of these other, you know, systemic 
things that are all coming to a head at the same time. Well, that is so powerful. I am very honored that Amy shared that story with us and our listeners and very sorry for her loss and for her family's loss. Yeah, um, definitely. It's, it is um, such an incredible tragedy and also just such a powerful story that encapsulates the real mental health problems that we are encountering as a society. You know, I've had a lot of struggles with mental health challenges in the past year and a half, which I will share in our last episode. But I just even while I was going through that experience was thinking about how insanely lucky I am (laughs) just to be able to get help. And it just it's it's I feel like, you know, that report just came out about kids and mental health issues related to climate change and how over half don't feel hope for their future. And so many like I can't remember the percentages, but very substantive percentages were dealing with anxiety and depression related to climate, not to mention covid and all of these other intersecting parts of our lives. And I just feel like as a climate activist that solving the utter failure of our mental health system has to be a climate solution. And I think I just can't even imagine going through the past year and a half being um, a mother <laughs> on top of all of these other other intersecting huge challenges just emotionally and, and you know, health-wise, how challenging that would be in Um, Amy really, she worked on this really incredible podcast, and she shares kind of what she learned through that experience. We had the opportunity last year and into the the first half of, of this year to work with the show This Land, which is a podcast about Indigenous rights and produced the second season of that show, which is all about a bunch of um, family law cases and a big part of that reporting and and kind of research was around indigenous approaches to family. The indigenous approach has been sort of stigmatized and pathologized by a lot of, you know, white social workers and, and other folks. But it's very like community focused, very much this idea that all the cousins might stay at, you know, one mom's house one night and another mom's house the next night and then grandma's house. And it's like the extended family all helps out in this way that I'm like, yeah, that's what everybody needs, actually, <laughs> to make this work. Or like I talked to this one researcher who talked about something that she called integrated mothering, which is sort of a combination of the community mothering that Black women have kind of done since forever in this country and and like the kind of the integration of that with with the work demands that people have now and she did research on middle and upper class black mothers and she said that they reported feeling like left out of the mainstream motherhood conversation because the way that a lot of white women are conditioned is like it's not okay to work too much if you have kids or, you know, maybe you should even think about taking off work to raise your kids. And that's the kind of the opposite in the black community where it's like you don't want to be reliant on someone else for your income and you want to like model being a strong woman. You need to have a job. <laughs> you know. And so she researched 
in in a bunch of different communities and talked to all these women who were like, yeah, I feel like I can't win. So, yeah, I mean, the nuclear family approach is like another thing where I'm like, ugh, like we individualized family structure, too. (laughs) It's like if it's just left up to every single family to figure out on their own some kind of a solution to being asked to work full time and parent full time, there is no solution to that that you can come up with on your own. I can definitely relate to this. You know, we just moved my mom up here to my community earlier this summer and just having this even just one more person here who's in my family to she's literally picking my daughter up from school every day and and bringing her home just as a, a tiny little example if I have to travel for work we don't have to worry about it anymore and just that that lack of a of a support system um that's that a lot of us have in these nuclear families is is very real and I appreciate her um especially shining a light on on other ways that people conceive of families and other ways of being and I think um you know part of that story for me of of getting my mom here and having that wonderful added support and getting to be close to her there's also a piece of loss in that one too because we sold my childhood home where my mom and dad had lived for 40 years in the Smoky Mountains of East Tennessee and it was very interwoven into who we were as a family it was 20 acres. It was a gorgeous spot and a log cabin and, uh, and, you know, wildflowers and a big garden and access to an amazing river where I got married and where we had the, the funeral service for my dad. So that loss of a place is, is another loss that I have been navigating slash trying not to think about slash (laughs) (laughs) trying to unravel over the course of the past few months. And I want to transition to that now because I think that when it comes to climate change, that's one of the things that's hitting closest to home for all of us is, is these places that for many people are very core to who we are, have been lost. They are in danger of being lost. And it is like losing part of yourself. I can say that with a deep sense of conviction after what I have been through. The the mourning and grief you have for a place like that is just as real and profound as the mourning and grief you have for a person. Yeah, I can definitely relate to that living on the Gulf Coast or kind of anticipatory loss in my case. Um, but Amy just you know, she's she's from California. She grew up in Southern California. She is a native. She's lived in California her whole life. And she basically, she was living in San Francisco and her her husband had their first kid and they're like, this is very expensive. We don't have a lot of time to like spend with our kid or just on the things that we love to do. So they decided to move up to Tahoe so they could have more land and more time and more money because the cost of living is lower. And they also are just huge nature lovers. And um, that's where they settled down and they and they started, you know, their family. And she shared what the past few years have felt like in this, you know, place that has been so magical and so core to her life and to her family and how they feel that living there long term is is no longer an option for them because of, of the impacts of climate change. Just this morning, I like left my house and I smelled smoke again. So I think there's a new fire. I haven't had time to check the like Cal Fire map to see where it is, but it's 
close enough that the smoke is getting over here. It's it's really it's weird because you'd think that it'd be pretty easy for any human to understand what it's like to not be able to breathe clean air for over two months. But it's really it's like a hard thing to grasp until you live through it. We had to have like a whole meeting at the school about how we were going to handle smoke days. You know, we used to have snow days here. (laughs) And they're like, it'll be just like snow days, which is really crazy. And then this was bleak. They were like, and if it's in between 150 and 300 AQI, which is the air quality index, um, then... We'll still have school, but we won't let them go outside. And I, and I was like, but doesn't that increase the COVID risk? And they were like, yes, it does. Yes, it does. <laughs> I was like, okay. One of the things that that brings to mind for me, having said goodbye this year to a place that was very important to me, is the fact that we don't really have rituals uh, about saying goodbye to places. And, you know, we do have rituals for many people they've been cut short this past year for saying goodbye to people I know when my dad passed away we couldn't have his service for several months and that was a, a very weird unmoored feeling to be floating around there in a world where you'd experience this big loss and you hadn't had that ritual of everybody coming together those rituals are important and and I, I felt that even more when I we were not able to to have it for many months we don't have rituals so much for losing places. And as as sad as it is to, to frame it that way, as our climate continues to change, which we, of course, are going to do everything we can to limit the damage and, and limit how much worse this gets. But we are losing some places already and we are going to lose some more and we don't really have rituals for dealing with that. Yeah, I think about that a lot. I I heard a historian speaking recently, I wish I remembered which one, but talking about how we really need to do a better job of like capturing and documenting these you know beloved places um, that we are unfortunately losing just with the the climate impacts that are are already happening and are already in you know already locked in. I think about that a lot living down here on the Gulf Coast, living in in a place that we will probably lose and um, what it means to be like one of the last generations to be able to live here and to experience the beauty of of this place and how do we honor it and cherish it and build rituals around saying goodbye to places it's it's something I really feel um, we need to work on (laughs) like we need we need some sort of spiritual practice or probably lots of different kinds of spiritual practices to be able to process this kind of loss that there's really no words for at this point. So, I mean, in, in a lot of ways, we're, we're talking about the death of, of places that we love and the death of, of really core parts of our identities. And I asked Amy, you know, how her ideas of death have changed as she's gone through the loss of her father, the just being alive at this moment and witnessing the loss of so many lives, and then also being in the midst of losing her home. And here's what she had to say. I do feel like I've gotten to this place where I see death as more a part of the cycle of life. And and hopefully like that this is something that I'm that I'm really trying to instill in my kids is like that you try to get to a place where hard things help you to to grow and evolve versus turn inward and and sort of get smaller, you know. 
And again, like, you know, <laughs> moving it out of the realm of the individual and into more of a, a collective kind of understanding of, of this like web of of experience and, and human life and humanity and nature and and all of that kind of stuff. So to me, it's sort of been this on-ramp to um, to really understanding that level of of kind of interconnectedness. I love that image of a web. I I wrote a piece recently describing how I felt when my dad passed away that it felt like this trapdoor had opened under me and there was this invisible web that had always held me up that was gone. But then this other web had, that had always been there, it became visible and that was the web of support of all of my friends and family and coworkers who gave me bottles of wine and prayer shawls and filled my mailbox up with cards and just gave me time and space to be sad and be by myself. And, and I think that as we are all going through these collective losses of COVID, of our climate, of our sort of shared life together, not living up to its promise, that it also gives us an opportunity to see where the real support systems are and to see that web that was always there but maybe invisible before and to think how how we weave it to make it even stronger because at the end of the day, that's that's what catches you. That's what would catch us all. And sometimes we take it for granted and we don't, we don't see it. We can't even see it until we need it. And we certainly have realized over the past year that we need that, that web of support more than ever. I love that. And I love what you said about like something that helps us get more expansive versus going inward, how she's trying to teach her children how to process loss um, to, to allow it to expand expand us, expand our hearts, expand our, our ways of looking at the world. Um, cause I've definitely done both. Like I, I've definitely gone through periods where I went very, very inward and got very small and got very, you know, scared and sad. And I think one of the things I've had to learn and have learned because of, of the connection to community and to others has been to open up more and to see, to see the beauty and the gratitude and the amazing people and, and, world that we still have and that has helped me reconnect when I you know when I did feel very sad or dark and I I love that way of looking at all this like you can have both at the same time you can be really sad about the loss and also be really grateful for the things you learn and the people who do hold you up so Marianne you're definitely one of those people in my life oh (laughs) likewise Anna Jane you were one of the people filling up my mailbox so (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. With a beautiful care package. Um, Well, thank you for bringing us this very personal and really profound conversation with Amy. And thanks to Amy for sharing herself with us and with our listeners. One last important thing before we sign off. If you or someone you know is struggling with suicidal thoughts, please call the National Suicide Lifeline anytime at 1-800-273-8255. Thank you to our sponsor, the Sierra Club. This episode was produced by the folks at Quantum Spin Studios. Our theme music was provided by the amazing band River Wireless, and we are distributed by Critical Frequency. 
And please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and leave us a review so that other people can find our show. Join the conversation between episodes by following us on Twitter at NPLH Podcast. And remember, there's no place like home.